This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Sure is good to see everybody this morning. Very grateful for our visitors who are here. Uh, It's always a pleasure to meet the church as it's spread out across the nation. Every once in a while we get to meet somebody that's not part of our local family and it's just a real pleasure to see you. And as Brother Clint said, we hope you'll hang around just a little bit after service so we can meet you and get to know you better. We're just so glad to have you here. A little story to start us out this morning. So at church... There was a preacher who was teaching how God made everything, and uh, that included human beings. One little boy seemed especially intent whenever he was teaching him how Eve was created out of one of Adam's ribs. Later in the week, his mother noticed him lying down as though he were ill and said, Son, what's the matter? And the little boy responded, I have a pain in my side. I think I'm having a wife. (laughs) Sometimes there are uh, teachings in the Bible That can be confusing at first glance. When you factor in parables, these are stories that were deliberately meant to reveal truth to some and keep it from others. You can end up with even more confusion. And I was interested as I was reading the parable of the unjust steward, there's a lot of confusion over this particular parable. A lot of commentators say it's probably the most confusing of all the parables in the New Testament. So this morning, I'd like to examine this fascinating parable, draw some lessons from it, the meaning that I believe Jesus intended, and hopefully uh, be an encouragement to everybody. So uh, the parable in question is Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And we're going to start reading verse 1. And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. Now, if you've read this before, we may be thinking that this manager is... uh, you know, unjust, dishonest, but this verse only describes him as wasteful at this point. His dishonesty takes place in verses 4 through 7, and then he's labeled as dishonest in verse 8. The word wasted here is the Greek word diaskorpizo, which means to dissipate, to rout, to separate, to winnow, squander, disperse, scatter, strew, or waste. In verse 2 it goes on, and he called him, And he said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer be steward. Put another way. So the employer called him in and said, What's this I hear about you? Get your report in order, because you're going to be fired. How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship. Again, the master accuses the steward or the manager not of dishonesty, but of squandering money. We're not told whether the charges are true yet. And at first glance, one might think that the rich man's about to give the steward a chance to defend himself. But then he goes on to say, for thou mayest be no longer steward. There is no chance to defend himself. The rich man summarily dismisses the steward. Verdict? Guilty. Now in Western thought, there's a problem at this point. We are innocent until proven guilty. We will have a chance to defend ourselves against accusations. And I wonder, did the steward feel this way? Was he surprised or shocked that he couldn't get a word in edgewise? Was he outraged that his years of faithful service 
did not weigh this accusation against him? Did he want to say, now hold on. I'm generally a good steward. I've been a, a good person with good intentions in managing your affairs. If you just let me explain, I'm sure you'll see my good intent. None of this happened. But I dare say there was a part of him that wished he could muster a defense, if, even if he knew it would be fruitless, if only because that's human nature. Let me point to another scripture to illustrate my point. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Our Lord speaking here. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now look at this part. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So you see, whether or not the unjust steward had tried to mount a defense, it doesn't matter. But I do believe it's important why it's not mentioned. You know, he would have done no good had he done it. The Lord, the rich man represented here represents God. God knows our guilt, regardless of what case we might lay out before him. But we know that in some point in the future, people who are declared guilty by the Lord will still try to mount a defense. Well, the steward here, he was already accused of squandering time and resources. It would have only served as further affirmation if he'd lied about it. That's not what we're supposed to be focused on here. What Matthew 7, 21 through 23 shows us is that despite human nature, we're going to face a judgment sometime that is negative against us and it's true. And there's something important that should happen in that event rather than denying it. We're going to get to that. So here you have this steward. He's undeniably guilty, clearly judged. He's facing ruin. What's he going to do? Well, first of all, he did not shut down in defeat, but he assessed the realities of his situation. Look at verse 3. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. So first of all, not just any future would do for this man. He didn't want to dig. He was ashamed to beg. And I want to ask you to think on this for a moment. Was this attitude that he had at this point, was it good or bad? He had messed up, he'd been caught, he'd been judged, and he was facing consequences for his actions in the future. He was too old or too weak apparently to dig, meaning there was no way for him to earn a living once he'd lost his job, and conversely, he was ashamed to beg. I want to look at this word ashamed. I skunamai, to feel shame for oneself, to be ashamed. There are five occurrences of this word in the entire New Testament and Bible. And as you look through these verses that I've got up here on the screen, you will find that uh, they have a general meaning that's implied. Your first impression upon reading about the unjust steward may be that, well, he's just too proud to beg. And maybe he was. But I don't believe that's the Lord's focus as he relays this parable. As you examine the use of this word in these verses here and in our parable, you'll find that it carries with the idea of further and future disgrace. The idea then would be that the unjust steward recognizes that he cannot do the only work available, digging, but it would also be shameful for him to sit in defeat and beg. He was capable of doing more than that. 
His talents and abilities were such that to simply beg would have been unacceptable for him specifically, and therefore it would heap even more shame upon that he'd already received from being fired. This is critically important. What it tells us is that this man's race was not yet finished, even though he'd been released as the steward. Yes, he had stumbled and fallen, but the race was not over. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. In other words, he knew that quitting was not an option as there was life beyond this present situation. Have you ever faced shame, defeat? You ever been either actually or figuratively fired from any position in life? Maybe you sense shame and defeat as a parent. Maybe as a spouse. Maybe as a worker at your job. And the question is, what will you do when that comes to you? You may not be able to go into a different line of work. For example, if you're a parent, you're going to be a parent until the day you die, regardless of how many times you fail. So you can't go get a job digging instead. And sitting there feeling sorry for yourself, curled up in a corner, is going to help no one, is it? So what do you do? Well, what did this man do? He developed and executed a plan to move forward and make the most of his circumstances and time that was remaining to him. He developed a plan that involved getting into the good graces of the presumably well-off debtors to the rich man. He wanted a certain place and certain circumstances to be present when he was thrown out on his ear. Now, I've heard some people say, well, shouldn't he have just gone and, you know, become a poor pauper and accepted that as part of his punishment? That's not what we're going to see in this parable. It is okay to want a good situation to form even after a colossal failure. And it's okay to work for it. Specifically, as we'll see, he was concerned with the type of friends he was going to have waiting for him on the other side. He wanted men of a certain status in a certain place with certain resources at his command or at their command, and he needed to do something dramatic to get it. Let's see what he did. Look at verse 4. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write four score. He's telling him to reduce on the paperwork, the amount that they owe. Now, scholars offer three possible interpretations of this steward's actions. First of all, that this manager, this steward, is cheating his master. Two, that he's simply deducting the interest payments that are prohibited in Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 through 20. You see, lenders in that day and age had concocted ways to sidestep the pro prohibition against charging interest, so it wouldn't be unusual for this Lord and this manager to have been charging interest on that debt. Or three, he may be simply deducting his own commission. Scholars are divided on this point, and a lot of it has to do with a verse that we're going to get to about something Jesus said. But for now, a lot of them lean toward the idea that he is deducting his own commission. 
because it seems improbable that the master would later commend him for cheating him. We'll talk about that in a minute. So this theory that he deducted his commission was furthered by one Dr. William Bean. He's a scholar in the history of first century Israel and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is what he says he discovered. It was discovered that in the first century, the master or the employer did not pay the steward or the employee a wage. Instead, a steward made his money by adding his fees on to the bills of the master's debtors or the customers. When the debtor receives the bill from the steward, he doesn't know how much of the bill belongs to the person he actually borrowed the money for and the guy who's collecting it. Only the steward would know that. When the debtors would pay their bill to the steward, the steward would pocket his portion of the bill and then he'd forward the remaining money to his master. So as this steward is called unrighteous, he says, we can assume that he was placing an extraordinarily high amount on the bills for his fee in order to make large amounts of money at the expense of his master and his master's debtor, debtors. However, when he found out he was going to be fired, he took the debtor's bills and reduced or eliminated the amount owed to him, thereby currying favor with these debtors in the hopes that one of them may hire him due to his perceived generosity. That is uh, one of the more popular views of this. However, deducting interest and commission payments seems unlikely to me for three reasons. First, these discounts are very large that he gave. It seems doubtful that the rich man's been allowing his manager to take a 20 to 50% commission. Two different measurements are represented here. A hundred Bottos of oil in verse 6 and 100 cores of wheat in verse 7. And I want to show you just how large these amounts are. A bottos or bath is about 9 gallons. That's 34 liters. So the debtor owes 900 gallons of olive oil. If you've seen olives before, you know they're small. The measures of oil was a 50% discount. If this debtor is obligated to give the rich man half of his total harvest, that total harvest would be 1,800 gallons of olive oil. Now, that is the produce of a very, very large olive grove. In fact, that's many times larger than the ordinary family grove of that time. And it's also worth three years of wages and is the product of at least 150 olive trees. That's a lot. And a core is approximately 10 to 15 bushels of wheat. That's six to 900 pounds. The debtor owes 60,000 to 90,000 pounds of wheat. And then presumably, he would have a total harvest of twice that amount. That's about 20 times the amount that an ordinary family plot could yield. The debtor in this case is offered a 20% discount. That's about 1,000 bushels of wheat by some estimates. It would take 100 acres of land in eight to 10 years to grow that. That is a, uh, that's a lot. Now imagine that, do we really believe this guy's taking that amount for his commission? Second, the steward discounted one debtor 450 gallons of olive oil and another de uh, debtor 2 to 300 bushels of wheat. That steward could have lived for years on a commission of that size. Why in the world would he write it off? If he needs to buy time to make good for himself, he could have done so living very comfortably, yet he didn't. And third, it seems unlikely that the rich man could be charging an interest rate of 20 to 50 percent because usury was against the, the, uh, the law in Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 through 20. The main takeaway here is that this was an enormous discount we're talking about. And these debtors were so blessed by this steward's unscrupulous discount 
that they were not only indebted to the rich landowner, now they were also indebted to the unjust steward as well. He didn't just skim a little bit off the books. He told them, sit down quickly, which is never a good sign when someone's got you signing a contract. And he brazenly took a fortune and he used it to navigate a personal crisis. When all things are considered, it seems likely that the steward did indeed cheat his former master by reducing the amounts that his debtors are obligated to pay him. So, how do you think the rich man reacts to the unjust steward's actions? Imagine this is your estate. And you announce that you're firing a man who's losing you money. He was responsible to manage and grow. And you basically call him in and say, here's your pink slip. Now you go balance the books and bring me the reports. I want to see them. You're being fired. And in that amount of time, this guy runs off and does this. He wastes more of your money. How do you think the rich man responded? Well, let's read about his no doubt righteous fury in verse 8. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now, wait a minute. Where's the righteous fury? This steward is a thief twice over now, at least. Why on earth would the Lord commend him? Which means give him some words of, it's like, well done, congratulations. You did a good job. That was wise. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of confusion and controversy that has come up over this parable at this point. You know, his master in the uh, Amplified Bible, it puts it this way. His master commended the unjust manager not for his misdeeds, but because he had acted shrewdly by preparing for his future employment. And that is a, perhaps an easier way to interpret and understand what's really being said here. Let's examine for a minute from a business perspective how the unjust steward's actions would have affected this, uh, this rich man. First of all, the rich man's generosity would soon spread. Rumors of it would. Enhancing his reputation. You see, when the steward acted to reduce the debt, he did so in the name of the rich man, right? As his representative. They don't know that he's being fired. And it makes the rich man look very generous indeed. So he's got, this rich man will be faced with one of two options. He can enjoy his newly enhanced reputation and accept the losses. Or he can retract the discounts at the expense of his reputation and at the risk of permanently damaging the relationship with his debtors. So what's really happened here is that this crafty steward backed the rich man into a corner. And the rich man acknowledges, hey, you won this round. That was pretty smart. And then in verse 8b, Jesus has something interesting to say. He says that the children of this world, unjust men like this steward, in this present day and age where Satan still rules on this earth, they are wiser than the children of light. Now we're getting into the lesson that's here in this parable. One commentator explains Jesus' remark this way. We can imagine the results of this action for the steward and for the landowner. It reminds me of the insurance salesman who took me to a nice restaurant and bought me an expensive meal while he showed me the policies. And after he'd spent all that money on my meal, I felt obligated to purchase the insurance from him. And I did. If the steward shows up in a few weeks and asks these debtors for a job, they're going to have some sense of obligation to him. They will very likely give him work. The steward will land on his feet. It was a stroke of genius to ingratiate himself to people who could help him out after his employment with the owner had ended. You really do have to hand it to this unjust steward, don't you? 
The rich man gave him advance notice. He took advantage of that. And we've been given advance notice of impending judgment also, haven't we? All of mankind has. They've received their pink slip, their notice of termination, and all of us have a short time to get our affairs in order. And God's watching to see what we're going to do at that time. Does this mean that we're to be dishonest thieves? Certainly not. Jesus isn't saying that He condones the evil, and He does call the steward unjust. What it means is that small measures would not have done the trick for this man, Skimming a little bit off the edges wouldn't have earned him these friends. No, this steward was tenacious. He was crafty. He was willing to get creative in using even what didn't belong to him, but that he had access to in order to effect change. Likewise, the salvation of others, the making of heavenly friends, it requires all the wisdom and craftiness and creativity that we can bring to bear as his stewards. Jesus is going to further explain what he's getting at in verse 9. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Let's look at a different translation. Now here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits, I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. Using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. And then final, a final translation, and I tell you, learn from this. Make friends for yourselves for eternity by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. That is, use material resources as a way to further the work of God so that when it runs out, which it will, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. This message, or the message here, is that getting saved is not all that we're called to do on this earth. Look at the Great Commission in Matthew. 28 verses 19 through 21. We're told to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. What constitutes a treasure in heaven? Well, let's, let's start with what it's not. Endless personal accumulation in this life, that's meaningless. Endless self-indulgence in life, that's meaningless too. Don't waste your short time here. Think about the master's gain rather than your own. It's been said and bears repeating you can't send your house up. Besides, you're going to have a better one. You can't send your car up. You're going to fly everywhere. You can't send nature and this earth up. It's going to be burned up and remade. You can't send any of that up. And whatever your little treasures are, just know that they're staying here. And someone else is going to figure out what to do with those things when you're gone. But there is one thing you can send up. Whatever time and resource you invest in spreading the gospel and the kingdom of God will someday be realized in the infinitely precious souls that are saved and in heaven as a result of your stewardship. Ready to welcome you there at the gates of heaven. That's why all this stuff matters. And Christ says in verse 10, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. 
Are you waiting for God to give you more before you will act as steward? Do you tell yourself and others that you cannot get to work until you have a change in circumstances? How often have you told God, when I get to this stage in life, when I get to this place, when I have this amount of savings, when I have this out of the way, then I will do these things. It's the source of so much regret in people's lives. When work settles down, I'll spend time with my kids. When I'm older and wiser, I'll talk to people about Christ. When I'm done binge-watching a series on Netflix, then I might read the Bible. Jesus says that entrusting you with more is not going to change the type of steward that you are. A faithful steward is always looking for ways to enrich his master, whether they've been entrusted with much or very little. And don't get the impression we're talking just about money. Money may be the least of the things that we're concerned about here. You wouldn't give more of yourself if you had more to give, according to Christ. So long as he was employed, this unjust steward, he enjoyed all the wealth of the rich man as if it were his own, yet he wasted it, we are told. That was in his heart already to do that. Jesus says that having more doesn't lead to greater faithfulness. Instead, he who is faithful in the little things, he will be faithful with much or he will be faithful as little. It's not about how much you have, it's about the condition of your heart. It's about your priorities. Faithful people are faithful whether they have a little or whether they have a lot. If you're concerned about advancing the kingdom and saving souls, you're going to give generously of what you have, whether it's a little or a lot. If your heart isn't toward heaven, added wealth isn't going to make it easier. You'll just be able to unjustly steward on a grander scale. And then verse 11. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you to your trust the true riches we know that the things of this world perish with using our symbols of status and wealth um, clothing vehicles homes connections they're all going to be eaten up by moths and rust and death jesus is stating that if we can't be faithful with these lesser things that usually belong to other men definitely belong to god and not us then we cannot be trusted to be given possession of something more valuable that is totally our own. The NLT words it this way, if you've not been faithful in that which, in that which belongs to another person, who's going to give you things to have as your own? If you can't take care of, you know, uh, this beat up old thing, why would I, this beat up old car, maybe you're saying this to a teenager, if you can't take care of this, there's no way I'm buying you a Corvette. Luke 16, verse 13, says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And here's really the summary of this entire parable. You can't have two bosses. You can't have two people giving you conflicting direction. Are you God's steward or are you your own? It's going to be one or the other. Do you pursue God's will or your will? Is your focus on obtaining earthly comfort 
treasures, or is it on heavenly treasures? It's been my experience that the best stewards are the ones that see great value in anything entrusted to them by another. I'm sure there's any of you in here that if I so much as gave you a special toothpick and said, my granddad chewed on this when I was five and I've kept it ever since, you'd think it's nasty, you'd think I was crazy, but you'd probably protect the toothpick. If for no other reason than out of respect. And yet when we think about what's truly important, God's immeasurably valuable souls. The most precious thing God has in all creation is mankind. The Bible is full of indications of that. He says that. We are his special creation. And how do we treat people? What do we do with the time that's been given? You know, immediately following this parable, Jesus gave another one. He related the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And when they died, Lazarus went from rags to heavenly riches. And the rich man went to hell. And while he was there, the rich man implored that Abraham send Lazarus back to his five brothers, who were apparently just as bad as he was, so that they would be convinced to change their ways and not go to hell. But you know, Abraham told him, he said, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they won't listen to that, then, you know, a ghost is not going to change their mind. And I remember when I was younger, I'd always be like, yes, it would. A ghost? Come on. You send a ghost before somebody, of course they're going to listen. The point is this, there is a state that your heart is in. You either value what God has entrusted to you or you don't. It's a heart problem. How much do you love people around you? What kind of steward are you? And the moral of the story is clear, there's no time like the present. The steward Christ commends is not the one who only acts when circumstances are favorable. He commends the one that has a sense of urgency about making the master's priorities his own. Fellow stewards, what are your priorities? Why do you think Satan tempted Jesus the way he did in Luke 4 verses 1 through 13? First, he tempts him to sate the desires and the needs of the flesh by telling him to turn some stones to bread. Then he tempted him with the lust of the eye, offering him authority and power over the kingdoms of this earth. And then he tempted him with the pride of life by telling him to tempt God by throwing himself off a cliff so that he had to be saved. You know, if he had done that, it would have been the same as yelling in God's face, don't you know who I am? I come first. I demand respect. I demand preeminence. This is what Satan wanted Jesus to do. But Jesus refused. Refused. Jesus had been given a job out of God's will, and he used his time, his energy, and his resources to faithfully execute that job while on his earth. And it wasn't about him. It's always about someone else. Thank God that Jesus was a faithful steward of what God had entrusted him with. What kind of steward are you? <clears throat> You know, I think the struggle that some people have with this parable is that they cannot or do not want to see themselves in it. Uh, they don't view themselves as stewards over vast resources belonging to another. And when it comes to other people, they simply don't see it as their problem. In fact, they see it as an impediment to taking care of themselves. So I want to share with you a little story. On May 25th, 2006, climber Lincoln Hall 
upper right, was left for dead by his guides on the side of Mount Everest. The next day, his crew released a statement announcing his death. Little did they know that Hall was very much alive, but in dire circumstances. He was suffering from altitude sickness, which had caused him to become disoriented. He was left alone on the mountain with no hat, no gloves, and no oxygen bottles. Mount Everest, uh, the most dangerous thing about Mount Everest is it's hard not to die climbing up it. And uh, just imagine this crew, these guides of his, the guy collapses. What do they do? They not only pronounce him dead, leave him there, but they, for good measure, they take his hat and his gloves and his oxygen with them and leave him there. Well, a day later, he's lying there face down in the snow. <clears throat> Daniel Mazur, he's on the bottom right, the guy to the left, <clears throat> and his climbing crew, they came across Hall. He looked like a dead man. Mazur was just two hours away from the peak. And if you do a little research about climbing Mount Everest, that's a big deal. You're almost there. But he abandoned his Everest quest. He left his party to carry Hall back down to the base camp at the base of the mountain. That was about a four-hour trek. Just days before, just to give you an idea of how unusual this was, another climber, David Sharp, died 1,000 feet much further down, 1,000 feet from the summit, when dozens of people passed him by. Why? Because they did not want him interrupting their opportunity for the glory of claiming to have gotten to the top of Mount Everest. It's kind of like the story of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? Not my responsibility, these other people. I got enough to worry about dealing with myself. These people, they're in a mess of their own makings. He shouldn't have gone up there. He wasn't ready. I mean, all he had to do was breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. He couldn't even do that. I'm sure not going to miss my opportunity for fame by picking him up and going back down. But then a guy who was almost at the very top stopped and did that and saved this man's life. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As every man hath received the gift gift of life, the gift of grace. Even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You see why I said money is not really what we're talking about here? This has to do with the heart. This has to do with an awareness of other people around you. You get yourself right, yes. But then immediately afterwards, it's about others. You get in God's will for you just like Jesus got in God's will for him and then you be about his business, not your business. Because there's people whose lives are on the line. And we have all the riches of God's kingdom, all the resources, all the blessings to save them not just in this life, but for all eternity from something far worse than freezing to death on Mount Everest. As stewards, what is our focus? Are we, are we prepared to ignore the hurt, the lost, and the dying of this world? There's a lot of people today that it's not even a matter of ignoring people. They objectify people just for their pleasure. That's all people exist for. It's from this type of person that you get things like drug use, pornography, theft, murder, all forms of immorality and depravity. Where do you think that comes from? 
I don't see you as a person if I've got that mindset. All I see you as is something to be used for me. What a horrible, horrible way to live and to act. John 15 verse 20 says, Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Yeah, it might cause you some trouble to do this. But just like Jesus affected miraculous change on this earth, he tells us, you know what? If they've kept my saying, they will keep your saying. You can, you can do something incredible. Something incredible as God's steward. So as we conclude... Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40 is up on the screen here. We'll get to that in a minute. This parable is about doing more than just going along with the flow. We're called to think creatively about our stewardship. How can we serve God more? How can we serve Him better? How can we really give Him the most possible in this life? And you know, the question, my question for you this morning is, how are you responding to the blessing of God in your life? Did He bless you with riches? Did he bless you with charisma? Did he bless you with beauty? Did he bless you with knowledge? With wisdom? With great stamina, strength? Has he made you capable of special or great feats? Do you excel at persuasion? Are you especially talented in a thing that someone else is not? Do you have at your disposal the estates and riches of the rich landowner represented by God? Do you have your Bible? Then you do. So what are you going to do with them? These are advantages that can all be leveraged while on this earth. And I want, to, I want you to know that it does not matter how many times you've failed at this in the past. It doesn't matter where you sit right now. Don't allow the failures of the past to stifle the great things God can do in you in the future. That's why this parable's here. Look at what this guy did. He got fired. He was going to be thrown out on his ear. Whole world's coming apart. And what's, what was he commended for, really? He got back up and he proceeded to do the wisest thing that he could with what was available to him. And that's what Jesus wants us to do in a spiritual and righteous way. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So there's two things here. One, there's a responsibility. To love God, we must love our fellow man. But two, there's an opportunity. Do you realize that God just said, all the law and the prophets hang on this. So effectively what he's saying is if you can do as he says and go out and love your neighbor as his steward and live your life in that way, that essentially he will be well pleased with you. And someday you can stand before him and hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. That's what the message of the morning comes back to. How much do you love the Lord? It's going to be clearly demonstrated in how much you love other people. Perhaps this morning uh, you are ready to commit yourself as a steward to the Lord. Maybe you're ready to give your life to something that is greater than just yourself. The way that you do that is you acknowledge your need for a Savior. You confess your sin. You repent of it. 
confess the name of Jesus, submit to Him in obedience, obey the gospel, be baptized, and rise in newness of life. You may also be a person like myself who's been practicing as a steward and maybe, maybe you've received your pink slip and maybe life's just fallen down around you and maybe you're facing some real consequences. Sometimes, like Brother Clint said at the beginning, we are yoke fellows together. If you're struggling to rectify those problems on your own, let us pray with you. That is what we're here for. There is no judgment. Anybody that would judge you in this body is a fool and they know it because we're all equally guilty of every possible thing that another could do. Sin is sin. And we all have it. There is no judgment. Not from us anyway. So if you need the prayers of the church, if you are ready to be baptized, we invite you to come forward, have a seat on that front bench, make your needs known, and someone will help you as we stand and sing the invitation song. enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.